Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at Good morning, everyone. My name is Dwayne, and I am one of the teaching pastors here at The District. Um, our church has a unique name. It's, it is The District, um, but that's exactly what we are. We are a district. A, a district, by definition, is just an area within a city that's marked by a particular characteristics. And so cities have districts. There's art districts, there's fashion districts, there's business districts, and we are a district. We are a community of people who are marked by, who are characterized by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we proclaim. That's what we share. We, we want to welcome you to the district church. That's what we want to proclaim to the community around us is that we are a people who trust the gospel. We are a people who believe in the gospel. And so you're going to hear me over and over and over again, elevate the gospel, lift up the gospel, put the gospel before you, because everything we do as a church centers around the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, we would not be here today if it weren't for the gospel, if it weren't for the good news of a man who came um, as God, came in the form of a man to live the perfect life that we could not live who died the death that we deserved because we could not live perfectly and then rose three days later into a glorified state guaranteeing for us his triumph over sin, death, Satan, and evil. And so we trust that. We believe that. And that's one of the things that we're going to be talking about today. But I want to first just welcome you and say happy Easter to each and every one of you. You may be here uh, simply because this is your church. This is where you attend regularly. You may be a family member of somebody who attends here. And so you've kind of joined up with them today. You might have been invited here by a coworker or by someone else. And I just want to say welcome to you in this place because I believe you're not here by chance. Um, just maybe... Um, for, for whether it's the first time or you've been hearing it for 40, uh, 40 years or 60 years, maybe today the gospel being preached, the gospel being put before you will be afresh to you, will be anew to you. Um, you might see something in the love and grace of God that you might not have ever seen before. Because the reality is the story that we're going to be telling today, for the most part, because we live in America which believes to be a Christian nation, or because we're in a Midwestern culture, which has a lot of religious kind of overtones or undertones within it, has a lot of history with religion. We've heard this story of a man who, who lived perfectly, a man who was crucified and died because of his claim to be God, and then who rose three days later. And after raising three days later, his, his kind of gang or his posse or his friends who were following him for three years then began spreading that message rapidly in the first century. Like this is not a story that's going to be unknown to a lot of us in this room. So just because we may have heard it doesn't mean that we've necessarily seen it or believe it. And so that's one of the main reasons why I want to share this with us today is because I don't know where we're all at specifically with this story of, of Jesus Christ. I mean, you've already seen it preached and proclaimed through the songs that we've been singing the story and message of this man, Jesus Christ, and the fact that everything about our church hinges on this one guy. And, and already you kind of have some preconceived notions about him. 
already you kind of have some filters or kind of a grid that you use to determine what you're going to believe about him or not. And so before I even jump into this story, what I want to do today is kind of preface it by saying there are two prominent filters or assumptions that we come into that we use on a daily basis to filter out or to sift through all the information that's coming to us all the truths that are coming to us, we're kind of sifting through them with these certain grids that we use to determine what we're going to accept or reject, what we're going to believe or disbelieve. And we use this with anything and everything in life. And so the two prominent assumptions or filters that we use as a society, as a people, are what we call modern and postmodern views. The modern view was, was very popular about 50 years ago. It was kind of when it was hitting its, its kind of stride and sort of now is, is slowly kind of fading off. But, but, but the modern viewpoint was that there's this sort of external objective evidence that's, that's I'm, that I'm going to use as a grid to help me determine what I'm going to believe. And so basically it was, it, there were these natural sort of closed laws that, that helped me determine or make sense of the world around me. So if, if it can be scientifically proved as fact, then I'll believe it. Or sort of if I can see it physically, if I can see it actually happen, then I'll believe it. And so with this sort of modern viewpoint about 50 years ago, what, was t what tended to happen was anything that was quote unquote supernatural or anything that didn't make sense or anything that could not be explained well or anything that could not be proven with facts was considered to be disbelief or was considered to be um, not true or not real. And so I have to see it to believe it. And that's the only way that I'm going to view it. And then we've kind of shifted out from there to now kind of our, our, our postmodern culture, which is our current society today that moves from external objective evidence to now internal subjective evidence. So it moves from can I see it to now can I feel it? Do I feel that this makes sense? Does this provide is this help for me? helpful for me? Does this make me flourish in my life? Is this good for me? And instead of using external objective evidence, instead of using kind of other things to help me determine what I'm going to believe, now it kind of comes to what do I think is most important for me to understand and believe? Someone tells me a story, that's great for you, but don't push that on me. I'm not going to believe that. I, I feel this way. I think this way. And so this is going to be my determining factor. And what, what we're kind of saying is I'm my own authority. I'm my own sovereign. I'm redefining the realities that are around me to be whatever I want them to be. Is this not every Facebook post you see in your newsfeed? Everybody's coming from the angle of what's relative to them. Everybody's coming from the angle of this has kind of been my experiences. This is kind of what I've seen and what I've not seen. And, and I kind of believe this could happen. Maybe this couldn't happen. Maybe it's good for you, but it's not really for me. And so now everything terminates on your feelings and your emotions and even just kind of your own thought processes. What's absolute is what's within. And the kind of scary thing about that is we have centuries, we have millenniums that are 
full of information, full of experiences, full of events that have happened that we did not personally experience. We were not there, but yet what we are doing in kind of this internal subjective viewpoint is we're saying I've processed all information that has ever existed and I've come to the conclusion that this is truth. It would be like this screen if every single little, because you might not be able to see it, but there's little dots here, all right? There's little white and, and, and black dots all across this screen. My mind, my heart, my experience from 1987, I'm showing my age, to 2017 right now is about 30 years. And there's information that I've processed from the little small town of White House, Tennessee, that has about 5,000 people. I'm a little tiny dot that had access to a certain amount of information. And for me to, with that little dot, say I've processed everything, I've experienced everything in all of creation, for me to say this is absolute or this is not absolute, based on my own experience, would be appalling. But yet that's how we think in today's society. That's how we think, that's how we view culture around us. That's how we process information that is constantly coming at us on a daily basis. A lot of us think that way in this room. We don't even know it. Because the reality is you've been discipled to think this way because this viewpoint is woven into movies, television shows, songs, contemporary education. It's woven into literally everything and anything that we see and touch and do and experience because what sells is going to ultimately be what you think is most gratifying for you. That's a reality. And it's not completely wrong. It's not a bad reality. In the same vein of that, I'm going to be saying, do you believe this message? Do you see this message? Have you come to a conclusion within yourself that this is true? But what I want to do today before going into this message is just kind of lift up for you or heighten awareness of how you sift through information. Do you use external objective evidence? Do you use internal subjective evidence? Because if what we're doing, when we look at this message, when I put the resurrection of Jesus Christ before you with heightened self-awareness, what I'm hoping is that we don't easily run to or be carried away with modern assumptions from 50 years ago that say resurrections can't happen. That supernatural events can't happen. That miracles can't happen. But I also don't want us to run to postmodern views that say, well, this really isn't helpful for me. This really doesn't benefit me right now. This really, I, I'm just not feeling it today. Because I don't want you to be confused by the bad Mexican you ate last night that the message being preached today is actually good news, but you're feeling like it's bad news. No, you just, you just need to let that Mexican process a little bit. So we need to just kind of come into this and consider, contemplate. Look at this not from just our own viewpoint or our own experiences, but look at this message recorded from eyewitness testimonies of people in the first century that God put in place in order to tell others what happened, in order to write it down so that 20 centuries away we can open up 
these Bibles and read it for ourselves, just like I can go to an, a magazine or I can go to um, a newspaper and see what current events are happening in our culture today. The gospel by definition means good news. This is the longest running newspaper that's been out there. It's been running for 2,000 years. 3,500 years if you include the, New, the Old Testament. This is the written word of God that is testifying, that is sharing with us an event that happened. And so my prayer for us today is that we would just consider it. And again, if your experience of this, like some of us in this room might say, I've experienced it before, I believed it before, and I found it not to be helpful for me. If you found it not to be helpful for you because a church burnt you, or because you saw other Christians who were hypocritical, or because for you personally, just did not find it to help flourish your life, then what I want to say to that is you didn't see the real thing. You didn't see the real thing. And I can say that in confidence, also knowing that every single church that you're going to be a part of is going to burn you. And I can say that with confidence that every single Christian that you meet that does believe this to be true is also going to be hypocritical at times. And I can also say that even in my own life, believing this wholeheartedly, there's going to be moments where I feel like it's not allowing me to flourish where I feel as though I'm missing something, where I feel as though God's far from me, where I feel as though, have, has, has the cross really forgiven me of my sins because I'm a navel gazer, because I'm walking around saying, woe is me, because I'm walking around exp experiencing my inadequacies. But I can say that it doesn't, it, it's not based on the quality of my faith, but the quality of the Savior. It's not based on how much I make myself believe it. It's how much he makes me see it, to believe it. And so that's what I'm hoping for. That's what I'm praying for today. So if you have Bibles, if, um, turn with me to John chapter 20. If you didn't bring a Bible, there should be a hard, ba uh, hard black, hardback black one around you. A little alliteration there. Um, so grab that, turn with me to John chapter 20. I'm going to get there in a moment, but what I want to first do is begin with a sermon that the Apostle Paul preached to philosophy lovers on Mars Hill in Athens, Greece. About 20 years after the death of Jesus, this is what Paul said, and this is found in Acts 17, 30 through 31. You stay in John 20. This will be up on the screen here. He says this, The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. At that point in the sermon, Paul's listeners literally cut him off and mocked him because of the claim that Jesus was raised from the dead which in itself is actually very significant because it means the amazing spread of Christianity in the first century did not happen because the people were gullible and ignorant and, and, and just kind of excited for something new. That's not why it spread. Skeptics often say Christianity was spread rapidly in first century because the people were ignorant and gullible and uneducated. And I'd say they're no different than us. 
I'm not saying you're gullible and uneducated and ignorant, maybe. But what I am saying is that they were, they were probably more skeptical in their day than what we are today. Like resurrections weren't normal in the first century. Like it wasn't just that when Jesus rose, it wasn't like some guy named Josephus came along and was like, yeah, I got a cousin that does this kind of thing too. Like this wasn't, I go to work and my job is that I see people just come back from the dead. Like that wasn't what morticians did. Like resurrections were not normal and people were extremely skeptical of this in all eras. And so I'm not afraid of, the skept of being skeptical about this. If anything, we are more skeptical as a culture than what they were in the first century. How do I know that? You can't even walk into a grocery checkout line without looking at magazines that have all these tips on how you can lose 10 pounds by eating a piece of chocolate cake if you just take this magic pill. And what do we do? I should try that. Like I need to, feel, we're so gullible just to believe anything because again, it comes back to that internal subjectivity that we have. Maybe that'll work. Maybe it won't. Maybe I'm going to try it out. Maybe let's see what happens. We're more gullible than they are. But notice what Paul said. God calls the whole world to repent. Why does God call the whole world to repent? Why is that important? He says, because we've all sinned against God. That is, we've not treasured him above all things. We've not looked to him above all things. What it ultimately means is we are by nature sinners. You say, I'm not a sinner. Okay, maybe that's a biblical term that we use for simply people who have messed up. People who have messed up. Have you ever messed up before? Absolutely. If you think you haven't messed up before, ask the person sitting next to you. They'll tell you when you've messed up before. We've all messed up. There's not a person on this planet who does not feel the weight of their own inadequacy. There's not a person in this room who doesn't feel the weight of there's something wrong inside of me. Nobody's perfect. The repentance Paul is pleading for is urgent because God is going to judge the world because of our inadequacies, because of our mess ups. This repentance Paul is pleading for is urgent because God is going to do this. He's going to do it by a man, Jesus Christ. What he's ultimately going to do is in the end, you're going to have Jesus standing there and we're going to stand next to him and he's going to do a little comparison. We've got a man who lived perfectly, and never sinned, and then we have us. And when you kind of compare us, it's, it's not going to be quick for us to kind of be like, like I, I just, can I go now? Is my turn done? I've seen all my junk. Because that's what happens when we put Jesus before you. When you see perfection, it reveals all of your imperfections. It reveals all of your past that's messed up. It reveals your current struggles that are messed up. And it reveals the future that you think is so bright and so beautiful. And, and, and I'm going to be so awesome 10 years from now. But yet even that is going to be 100% messed up. Falling short every single day. He's going to judge us by this man, Jesus. He's therefore the standard of perfection. And we're going to be compared to him. 
and every single time we're going to be found guilty of sin. When we're standing there, no excuse will work in that court. Well, I just wasn't aware of, no, that's not going to work. Because isn't there a gnawing in your soul? Isn't there something going on within you that just feels like something's off? Feels like something's wrong? And again, that's subjective, right? But that's a grace that God has given us to see that we need him. To see that we need something outside of us. Why do you think the top grossing movies out there are about superheroes who come to those who are in need of a savior? It's because it's woven within the fabric of our, of our identities. The fact that intrinsically we need a savior. We need that. We need that. We're intrinsically drawn to what we need because we are hopeless, helpless, and guilty sinners. Happy Easter, right? (laughs) Makes you feel real good inside. It seems a bit harsh. It seems a bit evil. But listen, God telling us that Jesus is going to judge us is not evil, but gracious. Knowing that God has provided forgiveness of sins through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, knowing that he's done that, And then for me to not tell you about it would be evil. Knowing it and not sharing it is immoral. And that's why we have to, as a church, that's why we center everything around the gospel because it's the only thing that we have to give you that is hope. This word from the Apostle Paul is flying full force with love into the face of the contemporary assumption that, so what if Christ rose from the grave? So what if Christ rose from the dead? It doesn't matter to me because I don't really find it helpful. Paul saying it does matter to you because it concerns you because there is a judgment that is coming and the judgment is directed straight at you. This isn't some type of like ethereal life on another galaxy. Maybe it happened, maybe it didn't. This is truth. This is real. This is like death. It is coming for you. And he says that the only way, as he says, of this God has given assurance, a warrant, an evidence, a proof to all by raising him from the dead. In other words, what he's saying is the resurrection of Jesus is designed by God to be a global proof, a hinge, an assurance that turning to Jesus for forgiveness is absolutely necessary because the judgment's coming. Because the judgment is coming. God's entire message throughout the Bible is simply this. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. God created everything that we see in all of of existence. Past, present, future, everything. He created it and it was good. It displayed his glory. It revealed his glory. It showed how awesome he was because he placed his image on it as us as people are image bearers of God. Which means we, we acted like him. We talked like him. We loved one another like God loves. We interacted with one another like God interacts. And then our first parents, Adam and Eve, they rebelled. They didn't trust. They were disobedient. 
And because of that, sin and death came into God's creation. And God already warned them. He already told them, like, if, you, if you're disobedient, if you disobey what I command, then surely you're going to die. Death is going to come into this thing. Abiding in God is life. Disobedience in God is death. And he says, this is what's going to happen. So death entered in, and then God, you've got the proto-evangelium. You've got the first gospel ever preached when God comes into the garden and he looks for Adam and Eve, and he says to them, what happened? Now, God already knew what happened. He's providing an opportunity for them to confess, for them to turn back to him, for them to come back to him and say, we messed up. We failed. And then God goes to the serpent who deceived them, Satan. He goes to the serpent and he says, there will be a seed who comes from the woman that will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. First gospel ever preached. That Jesus Christ will come and through his death, the bruising of his heel, through his death, he's going to crush you. He's going to kill death, sin, and Satan all in one blow. And that's what we remembered on Friday. That's why it's called Good Friday is because God took the sin of the world and placed it on Jesus so that those who believe in him would not have that punishment placed on them. That's the judgment that's coming is that we're going to reap the benefit for our disobedience. We're going to reap the benefit for our inadequacies, our falling short. And he places it on Jesus as a substitution and he says, Jesus died for you so that you don't have to die. That's the redemption. And then God is using the gospel, the good news, to transform us to be more and more like his son Jesus so that we now love one another like God loves us. We now love others like God loves us. We now steward resources, our time. We steward our, our jobs and our careers. We steward all those things to look like what God originally had in Eden with Adam and Eve before sin came into it. He's restoring. He's making all things new. And the way, the way in which we believe this hinges upon whether or not we see that he rose from the dead. Whether or not we see that, whether or not we believe that, if all, if all of Christianity, if salvation is contingent upon believing that Jesus rose from the dead, then my question for us today is how do we see it? How do we know when 20 years have gone by, when 20 centuries have gone by, how does a person receive this assurance that Jesus rose from the grave leading them to turn to Christ and receive the eternal life. Another witness besides Paul was Peter in Acts 10, 40 through 41. This is eight to 10 years after the resurrection of Jesus. He says this, God raised Jesus on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. In other words, it was God's intentional design, not for the risen Christ to be seen physically by everyone, not even in the day when it happened and certainly not today, as much as we might wish it could. How many times have we said, if Jesus would just walk in this room, I'd believe in him. That's not the way God designed for it to work. He didn't even do that with everybody that was present in the first century. 
he appeared to a limited group of people with enough proofs and enough time spent with them for them, for their entire reality to be convinced of his resurrection so that they would go and tell others and so that they would also write it down for us to be able to read it 20 centuries away. God's design for the gospel to be spread was through the witnesses of those who saw it. So how did they see? We finally get to our passage, John 20. Don't be afraid. That wasn't just the introduction. There was more in there. But John chapter 20, on both, as you're there in John 20, on both sides, 1935 and uh, 21 verse 24, we have John claiming that this is his eyewitness testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. So let's let him have his witness to us. And my prayer in this time is for God to help us see that this is true and that it really matters for your life, both here and now and for eternity. Verse one. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Did you catch that? Mary did not believe the resurrection had happened. She assumed just the body was moved. This is another evidence of how slow the disciples, even the women in first century, were to believe Jesus had been raised. They were not easily excitable, gullible people. They were, they were skeptics, just like many of us are today. And then paraphrasing, Peter and the other disciple, probably John, the one whom Jesus loved, the writer of this book, ran to the tomb. John outran Peter and stood looking in. Verse 5 says, Stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there. This is what Jesus' body had been wrapped in when they buried him. Verses six through seven says, Then Simon Peter came and following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus's head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Sounds a lot like the behavior of thieves, right? Grab the body, but don't forget to fold the cloths. Make sure they look nice and neat before we leave. Because that's one of the like that's what Mary thought. Mary thought some thieves came in and took his body and left. A lot of skeptics today believe that just the body was moved in order to create or fabricate this message. Two things that I want you to see from from verses six through seven. First is that Jesus rose bodily, not just spiritually, from the dead. Some are willing to talk about the resurrection of, as if it's some type of ethereal or just spiritual idea of Jesus's message to carry on. Kind of like Martin Luther King dying and then the message of the civil rights movement continuing on after him. Some people believe that that's what ultimately happened with Jesus. Well, if that's what happened, then just produce a body. Like the first century Jews were so adamant about killing this new kind of uh, religion, this new kind of message, this new way, this new movement. They were so adamant about destroying it that the first days, the first weeks, the first months, they were spending night and day searching for the body. Because if they wanted to kill the whole thing, all you have to do is produce a body. 
We would not be here today if there was a body. So Jesus rose bodily, not just metaphorically. The second thing I want you to see is that his body was, was like the body that died, but not like it. It was same, but not the same. Well, that's really helpful, Dwayne. Like, you want to expound upon that a little bit? What we see in the New Testament, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, 23, Christ is the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. What he's saying is that what happens with Jesus in the tomb is what will also happen to us one day. So this matters to you because if you belong to him, if you belong to Christ, then what happened to his body in the tomb will also one day happen to us. And the point of saying the linen cloths were there and even mentioning the cloth was that, well, uh, that was bound around his face is to show how this resurrection is different from the resurrection of Lazarus that happened several weeks before. We actually talked about this two weeks ago in John chapter 11, the resurrection of Lazarus. In, in verse 44 of that chapter, it says, the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. He was wrapped up just the exact same way that Jesus was. Yet when Lazarus came out of the tomb resurrected, he was still bound. Why? Because he had a mortal body. Lazarus would die again. Jesus' body that rose was an immortal body that would not die again. There's similarities, but differences between the two. We know that Jesus won't die again because it says that in Romans 6, 9. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Jesus' body is different. It's physical, but immortal. He simply passed through those grave cloths like he passed through the stone, like he passed through doors that were locked, as we see in John chapter 20, verses 19, and also verse 26. It says, although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. That's kind of scary to think about. I could be in a closed room, locked doors, and all of a sudden Jesus just appears. Physically appears. How does that happen? I used to tell my students when I was a youth pastor um, for six years that I can't wait for the day when I receive a glorified body so that I could teleport. It's scriptures like this that give me hope that that might actually happen. And that's not necessarily the point here, but... How does he physically get into a room that has locked doors? Unless there's something unique about his body. And we don't know the, the physical biology of this new body that Jesus has. But what we do know is that it can pass through walls. That can end up in areas without using doors that are locked. But then when he gets into the room, he says to Doubting Thomas in John 20, verse 27, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but, but believe. So there's physical. We see in Luke 24, 43, that Jesus says, you got some fish? Give me some fish. I want to eat. Like spiritual bodies don't eat. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen like, like ghost movies and stuff, but when they eat, it kind of falls through and just falls on the floor. That's not happening with Jesus here. 
All right, he's eating fish with them. He's got a physical body that is immortal. And, and scripture tells us the reason why this is important for us is because for those who belong to Christ, Paul says in Philippians 3.21, that Jesus will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. For some of it, like for those of us that are younger, that might not mean much to you because you're kind of like still vibrant in life. But for those of us who are older, you're like, amen. Give me that glorified body because this poor body, whether I kneel down or whether I'm sleeping, I'm getting bruised, I'm getting injured. It just happens. We get a new body and more of that next week because the reality is, is that there's implications that matter for you. This isn't just something that we believe and see and then walk away and nothing changes in our life. Next week, what we're gonna be talking about is he's risen, so what? He's risen. What does that mean for us on a daily basis? This has implications for us on how we live. So here's the issue. Do you see? Do you see that he rose? In verse eight, it says in chapter 20, then the other disciple, probably John, who had reached the tomb first also went in and it says he saw and believed. Well, what did he see? What did he believe? Jesus wasn't there. All he saw were some linen cloths. Compare this to, to Mary's testimony. Mary in John chapter 20, verse 18, says that she met Jesus in the garden and spoke to him. She returns to the disciples and says, I've seen the Lord. She physically saw Jesus and believed and went and told people. John sees the tomb full of linen cloths and says that he saw and believed. There's a difference there between the two of them. We don't see like Mary saw. We see much more like John saw when he stooped to look into the tomb. There's evidence and either we see through it and trust it or we don't. That's the big question for you today. I'm going to begin closing this out with a story to help you sort of experience the same type of seeing or believing that I'm trying to get at here that's not a physical seeing. I mentioned I was a youth pastor and the last thing that I did um, as a youth pastor was take graduating seniors uh, on a senior trip to Florida and we spent a week in Florida and it was a phenomenal time and when we got back from the senior trip um, I was preparing to move our family to Miami, Florida to start a church plant down there as well and um, as I was, I, I, this was about two weeks after the senior trip, I went to Miami, I was driving on the interstate and I got a phone call from my senior pastor back at the church that I worked on staff with. He said, Dwayne, I need you to pull off the road. I need you to get into a parking lot. I said, all right, this must be pretty serious. And so I pull off the road, I get into the parking lot and he proceeds to tell me, he says, um, it's Sloan. Sloan was one of our seniors and he says he's died. And I remember just kind of sitting there and, and just being in the parking lot and processing it and just thinking, this can't be. I, 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 I don't believe you. I just talked to him on the phone three days ago. Not only that, but two weeks ago, I spent a week with him in Florida on a senior trip. What do you mean he's dead? And he says, Dwayne, I went to his house. I spoke with his parents. I spoke with the EMTs. They found him in his room. He says, I saw it all. He's gone. He's dead. And in that moment, as the news sunk in, I said, I see. 
I wasn't there. I didn't see it with my own eyes. But through the testimony of, se- of my senior pastor, my mentor, actually calling me and telling me, his experience became my reality. His testimony became a window for me to look through and see the truth. I did not see the way Mary saw, the way Peter saw, but for me to say I see was just the exact same. God's brought you here for this message and for this scripture and for this story of the resurrection of Jesus and this witness. And my prayer for you as we close is that you will now or very soon by God's grace say, I see. There's one main difference between Jesus and my story. It's not that he's died, it's that he's alive. It's as though another phone call were to come through ringing while I'm in that parking lot crying my eyes out. He's not dead, Sloan's alive. That's what Mary did. Mary came running to the disciples. Jesus isn't dead, he's alive. I've seen him, I've spoken with him. The disciples are running around all of Jerusalem telling people Jesus isn't dead, he is alive. We've seen him, we've talked to him, we've eaten with him, we've spent 40 days with him. He's alive. This is John's witness, John's testimony. And we see later on in John's life, 60 years later, after the resurrection happens. That's a lot of time to go by. John becomes an elder and a pastor in a church in the city called Ephesus. And he's writing this letter, 1 John Chapter one, verses one through four, this is what he says. This is what he's still proclaiming. This is what he's still believing. This is what he's still seeing. And he's proclaiming this to people who were not there to see it. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. The life, life is found in Christ. Christ was made manifest. He came into physical form. And we've seen it. And we testify to it. And we proclaim it to you, the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and we have heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. He's preaching, he's proclaiming, he's sharing this testimony so that people will see it, believe it, and come into the church, come into the fellowship of other believers who it says, we have fellowship with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. It means this isn't just for me to take and say, yeah, this is good for me. No, what makes my joy complete about the message of the gospel is by seeing other people come in and see it and believe it. That's the invitation for us today. Do you see that Jesus rose? And if so, do you believe it? Does it lead you to see that God has triumphed over sin and death and therefore Jesus has all authority to offer forgiveness to those standing in the judgment of God? 
He goes on down into, into verse 9 of 1 John 1. It says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's forgiveness for you. There's rest for you. There's hope for your inadequacy. There's hope for your burdens. And that hope is Jesus Christ who broke his body and shed his blood and died absorbing the wrath of God on your part. And three days later, he rose. He rose from the grave. And the reason why we know that he rose is because we see this. We see this through the witnesses of others who saw it. We believe this because of their testimonies. Those who saw the tomb empty, those who saw the linen cloth, those who saw Jesus and touched his side and touched his hands and ate and drank with him as the risen savior of the world. If you came in here not believing, do you believe? Do you see it? Do you see that God's made a way through Jesus that gives you rest from trying, gives you peace amidst the pain, gives you eternal life with him despite your iniquity against him? As you're processing this information, I'm gonna go ahead and ask the band to come down front. As you're processing, as you're thinking through the claim that Jesus lived perfect, that he was God in human flesh, that the reason why God had to send Jesus was because you and I could not live perfect. And perfection cannot dwell with God. And so he had to send somebody to be perfect and he sent his son Jesus to do that. So Jesus earns our righteousness. Jesus then also earns our penalty as it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that he who knew no sin, meaning Jesus who knew no sin, Jesus was perfect. He who knew no sin became sin so that you and I might become the righteousness of God. We call it the great exchange. Jesus was perfect and the standard of righteousness and he took our sin and became what we are so that when we see what he did, when we believe what he did, he then gives us his righteousness. And because he gives us his righteousness as a gift, as a grace, we are now able to be in fellowship with the Father. We are now able to be in fellowship with God and that changes everything. It changes the way you love your spouse. It changes the way you love your kids. It changes the way that you love your coworkers. It changes the way that if you're a teacher, that the way you love your students and teach them. It changes the way that you steward your resources. It changes everything because now we're in a process of being restored to image God, to reflect his glory. And in that place of ascribing glory to God and not trying to receive it for myself. In that place of giving him glory, I receive the utmost joy that I'm so longing for in this world and this world cannot offer it. I mean, how many times has the world let us down? How many times has the magazine tips let us down? How many times has our careers let us down? How many times have our spouses and our kids let us down? 
We're not going to find ultimate satisfaction in the world, what the world has to offer. We find it in God and God alone. And the way that we get there is through the gospel, through the message of Jesus Christ, what he's done on our behalf. And the fact that he rose from the grave allows us to be able to see it and believe it to be true. If you would, just close your eyes. Who today says for the first time, God, I've sinned against you. I've messed up. I need Jesus. I need forgiveness. And because of that, you sent Jesus to earn for me all that I need to come back to you. I couldn't live perfect, so Jesus did. I deserve to die but Jesus died in my place. And on the third day, that first Easter Sunday, Jesus rose from the grave, defeating sin. And the only thing keeping me from coming to you is whether or not I see it. Whether or not I believe it. Lord, for the first time I see. I believe you are Jesus, the Son of God the Savior of this world. If you believe it for the first time, if you see it for the first time, regardless if you've been in church your entire life or if this is the first time you've walked into a church, if you see it, if you believe it, would you raise your hand? God, we thank you. We love you. We honor you. We rest in your work. We rest in your grace. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon from The District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at